the defense of a person's right to freedom of speech, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, self-defense. Uh, if Trump ever did turn on the people the way the extremists think he is as the next Hitler, I will be the first one to take off arms next to them against him. I will not put up with that crap. Hello again, and welcome to the AppCast. I am your host, Wes, joined as always with Alex. How's it going, Alex? It's good, man. Good. Life is good. Good, good, good. So, before we get into today's topic, a few house cleaning uh, topics we got to deal with. First, we got some new likes on the page. Uh, With that, facebook.com slash Podcast. Find us there, like the page. Uh, the latest likes here are Jennifer Kennedy, Dale Harry, Matthew Lemack, Aaron Thompson, Ashley Cunningham, Crystal Dixon, Quentin Griffin, and the Pootie himself, Chris Poots. Uh, fantastic. Good to see him finally like the page. Um, Alex, you don't know him yet, but uh, he's a fellow podcaster in Canada land. Canada land. Yeah, he's a good guy. And along with that, we have some reviews on iTunes. Uh, So with that, remember, we are on iTunes, your favorite podcast catcher. Give us a five-star review. Uh, Actually, five-star rating and leave a review, and we'll read it. We've got two reviews since the last episode. The first one from Blessed 37 Ways. I always learn something from listening to APT's messages. Thank you for expanding my outlook and vocabulary. LOL. (laughs) (laughs) We're very verbose. There's another one. (laughs) Yeah, verbose. Let's add that to the list. And uh, Saturday, this is actually a guy I just recently met. uh, And I can tell he left this while while we were sitting there talking. He said, sitting here talking to Wes right now before I've even listened to this podcast. And I'm hooked before I've started. Five-star review. That's, That's a good great. guy. That's from Andrew Wolf. Oh, what did he get himself into? Uh, well, he's about to find out. <laughs> so, last week, we dove into the topic of abortion and pro-life, protecting life. Uh, the title of the episode, Life, Liberty, and Protection. And we decided to make this a two-part series. And I think a good launching off point for this particular installment is a common objection that comes up. Uh, when discussing pro-life issues, is the counter that most pro-lifers seem also to be pro-gun. And with the perceived prevalence of gun violence in society, how can we balance these two ideas being pro-life, pro-unborn children, and also pro-gun ownership, pro-Second Amendment? Alex, uh, go ahead and start it off for us. Yeah, so you you first got to address where that argument comes from, right? The, the people who would typically hold that position that it's contrarian or contradictory to each other are only looking at the violence that occurs with guns. They're not looking at guns as a necessary defense mechanism to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. They're not looking at guns as 
a means of self-defense. They're looking at them as evil weapons that shouldn't exist. And if you start with that perspective, no argument we can provide is going to convince the person otherwise, right? It, we're, we're not going to convince them of the validity or the, va- the value, the benefit of us being allowed to carry guns because the laws that allow us to carry guns put more guns in the public domain so that these criminals have quote unquote easier access to the guns. Right. And I won't lie, there is some validity to the argument if guns exist, bad guys can get guns. So guns shouldn't exist. Uh from from that component of the logic in the argument. Overall, the argument is based on statistics and studies and measurements that don't capture the widespread defensive use of firearms. There was a study done about a decade and a half ago. It may have even been in the late 90s. Uh, the, the study itself was flawed, so the numbers they came up with, or rather the study was not flawed, the numbers they came up with overestimated the defensive use of firearms. But even correcting for normalizing the statistics, the defensive uses of guns per year was exponentially higher than the criminal use of guns. Right. So the, the study, I think it was around a 2.3 million per year defensive use of firearms. And that number was wrong because of the metrics and the math they used to get to that number, uh, generalizing the survey onto the, the population of the country. Mm-hmm. But even normalizing the math, it was still over a, a million defensive uses a year. And there's something like half a million uh, criminal uses of a firearm per year. Wow. So, and the reason this kind of knowledge isn't widespread is because the people who would study it either have a political agenda that keeps them from wanting to study it because for example, the CDC is whether you want to admit it or not, it has a political aspect to it, right? Whatever the government is focusing on, the CDC is going to follow that. Right. Right. So they're not going to study defensive use of a gun if the government is not really interested in knowing what those numbers are. Exactly right. And the the statistics are there to extrapolate what defensive firearm use is from year to year in in studies like the CDC's use. Uh, The the numbers that the other side of the argument, the anti-gunner argument usually use come from the FBI and there is no factual quote unquote argument to counter them because the FBI, most state and local uh, law enforcement organizations do not require defensive use of a gun to be reported. Now, if you, being a CCW holder and a firearms concealed carry uh, advocate, I know firsthand from my own training 
that if you carry a gun, if you use it defensively, whether you fire it, which would be captured and recorded by the FBI statistics, or you do not fire it and you just draw it to ward off an attack without actually, quote unquote, using it, firing the firearm, uh, the latter is not captured by FBI statistics because it is not necessary to report that. Mm-hmm. Now, if you going back to the point I was starting to make, if you do not call in and report that and your assailant calls in and says you threaten them with a gun, you can be held criminally liable for assault with a deadly weapon if they report it as a crime before you do. So you can wow. get robbed. Someone can attempt to rob you. Someone can attempt to rape you. Someone can attempt something even more violent than that. And if you defend yourself with a gun and you don't report it, you stand the chance of being cr- held criminally liable if they report the altercation before you do and give a different account than what you did. And there's not video evidence, audio evidence, some some firsthand accounting type evidence showing that they were the attacker. So it's kind of a catch-22. People don't report it because they don't have to, but a large number of people either take the chance or don't know how significantly criminally liable they could be held for false accusations. Right. Right. So the, the whole premise of guns are evil depends on a refusal to accept or even just generally a lack of knowledge of the fact that firearms are far more commonly used defensively than they are for crime. Uh, It's just that the way they are typically used, not firing the firearm, uh, brandishing the firearm in self-defense, is not a statistic the FBI tracks because it's not required by law to uh, report it. So circling back, the the anti-gun argument does have some validity in that if guns did not exist, there would be less firearms crime. It is a straw man argument because the rest of quote unquote civilized society in the world proves that a lack of firearms does not remove violent crime from society, right? The, The societies that don't have the violent crime don't have it for cultural reasons or, uh, you know, the melting pot that the U S is described as people from all over the world come here and bring their culture. And it's a melting pot of cultures and everybody generally uh, adheres to the American ideal of acceptance of other people uh, that that's going to cause a lack of unity, you know, right. versus someplace like Switzerland or uh, uh, another different type of culture like Japan. Uh, those are very different cultures. Switzerland is very much white. Uh, Japan is very much Asian, Japanese, ethnic, very homogenous Asian societies. personnel. Their cultures are very unified. Yeah. Right. And their cultures are very focused generally on the different ways each of those cultures are unified ethnically and culturally. Uh, you don't have that in America. So even if you didn't have guns, you'd ha- still have more violence than other places that we're often compared to. Well, sure. And, and also look at a place like Britain who uh, implemented uh, stronger gun laws, outlawing guns, and 
murder and, and violent crimes in general uh, didn't drop off. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, they did slightly increase. But instead of using guns, they were using knives. Knives, so acid attacks. Yeah. Uh, it, so, so the gun weapons. itself is not evil. The, the gun itself is a tool. It's the human heart that's evil. If, if the person wants, if anybody wants to attack another human being, they will find a way to do it. Whether it's yep. by a gun, whether it's by a knife. Uh, last time I checked, uh, Cain didn't need a gun to slay Abel. He had a rock. Yeah. That's all he needed. Exactly. And people were murdering each other for thousands of years before guns were created. Yep. Before gunpowder was created by the Chinese. It is, it has some validity to it that you have to address if you're going to have a reasoned argument or discussion about real solutions. But where they take those objective facts is just not reality, right? So let's talk about it from both a current politics and a biblical point of view. All right. What, what would be biblically a self-defense, a, a valid self-defense argument? Uh, the Help me out here. Is it Luke where Jesus is talking to him about selling the cloaks to buy the swords? Yeah. Uh, when he sends out the uh, 70 disciples. Uh, okay. Sell your cloak, buy a sword. Yeah. There's that. And then the passage where uh, his disciples are going with him into the garden, and uh, the two guys, uh, they, they identify that two of them have a sword, uh, and that statement that it's sufficient. So, mm-hmm. you know, people who argue against that from a pacifist point of view argue that. The 70 disciples in and of itself is not clear evidence for Mm -hmm. self-defense. They'd claim it's either cultural or ethnic or whatnot. And they would reference the passage where Jesus is asking them about how many uh, swords they have before they go into the garden and say, well, he was just wanting them to have one so that he could fulfill the prophecy and show them the power when, uh, oh gosh, was it Peter who cut off the ear of the guard? Yeah. Uh, so that's oversimplifying the case, right? Culturally, in Rome and in the Hebrew culture in the first century, they carried swords to defend themselves from robbers and marauders, right? It, it, well, not not even that. If you go back to Exodus, I mean, shortly after the... Ten Commandments was given as, as Moses expounds on the law. Uh, I forget if it was in 21 or 22, but there is a delineation made between a robber that breaks into your home. If it's at night and you kill that uh, robber, there is no blood guilt on your hands. And the implication there is you're protecting your family, you're protecting your property. You have the ability to do that. And at night, you don't see the person. You don't know their intentions. You don't have a way to do that uh, without uh, potentially making your family more vulnerable. However, in the same passage, if that happens during the day and you slay that person, the blood guilt is on your hands because if the person is there simply uh, for robbery purposes and you murder them, it is considered murder. It is considered an unjust taking of a human life and therefore you do have 
blood guilt on your hands, but implicit in that. Well, let's is, clarify that, that that case is one of those that is uh, the blood guilt. It's not, if I remember correctly, it's not one of the cases of actual murder. You know, they're, they, the uh, Mosaic law differentiated between intentional murder and the blood debt where they were exiled to the uh, external city outside of the Hebrew culture where those with the blood uh, guilt resided. So it was exile, not death for well, intentional and, murder. And, and there are also those who say that just because the law declares that a crime is eligible for the death penalty, that is not necessarily given. And so yeah. similarly, you would have these cities for those, those same types of offenses. But all that to say, going as far back as Moses, we see a provision in God's law for protecting your family, your home, your property with violent force if necessary. Absolutely. And building on that, the the argument from the other side, playing devil's advocate for a moment, the argument for the other side in the garden where Jesus chastises Peter for mm-hmm. defending him with violence, they would say, well, that's that's evidence of Jesus changing or fulfilling the code so that we're not really adhering to the code of law anymore. False. And I just disagree with that because that that's that's over applying what Jesus was saying there. You know, he was upset that Peter was interfering with his entire goal and mission for being on earth, right? His right. goal and mission for coming to earth was to be a sacrifice. And Peter was interfering with that. And just stay in that same uh, storyline, right? The fact that it was Peter is important because just a few chapters before, when Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to be given over for crucifixion. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to let it happen. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? Here in the garden, you have Peter once again, standing up saying, no, you're not going to take him. After Jesus has already said by this point, multiple times, he's going. This is the reason he's come. And Peter is this in is defiance of that. Yeah. So it's a category error to equate Jesus's response to Peter as pointing to a necessity for Christians to necessarily be pacifists, for example. Yes. So the the left wing, and I call it left wing, there are self-proclaiming conservative Christians who are anti-gun, anti-self-defense pacifists. But generally speaking, the left-wing biblical-sourced argument is over-application of the scenario. Because elsewhere, the 70 disciples going out, Jesus, I think it's Jesus, not Paul or Peter, is telling them, you know, sell your cloak and buy a sword to defend yourself or uh, and then you brought up in Exodus the self-defense of the your own personage and your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can't really apply that to war, but we can definitely ap- apply it to the Second Amendment right to self-defense. You know, right to life defended by the right to self-defense. Right. So on that, we, we, we've mentioned in just about every episode we've been on here together. I don't think you directly mentioned it in uh, your solo podcast on episode two, the situation in Virginia. Now, government 
throughout history has tried to limit people's ability to defend themselves against the will of the government. And the reason I uphold and defend the Second Amendment so vehemently is just the sheer objective fact that the stronger government is, the more it tends towards totalitarianism and tyranny, Mm -hmm. right? It's just an objective truth of the existence of government. And honestly, I think it's part of the human condition, the fallen human condition. People tend towards sin. People tend towards evil. And I think even non-Calvinists like myself would agree that 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 is the tendency of man outside of a relationship with God, uh, that I don't want to give the government any more power over me than they already have, and I want to take some of it away from them. So the the argument that only the government should have weapons and private citizens should not have weapons of war is a self-defeating argument in as much as the government is made up of nothing but private citizens with more power than you, right? They're, yeah. they're not more moral, more objectively or even subjectively morally righteous than anyone else. They just have more power and you've given them authority over yourself. So I think the tyranny we're seeing in Virginia is more of a spark for opposition to authoritarian government than people realize uh, that it was very impressive last week during the holiday, how 22,000, it was over 20,000 people massed at the state capitol uh every single one of them carrying guns not every one of them but the vast majority of them carrying guns they refused to be held inside of the free speech zone which was basically a gun-free zone they amassed in the city block around that free speech area and no violence at all occurred now you had left-wing People like Antifa, they're supporting gun rights because they also recognize that a totalitarian government, even if even if they only see the right wing Nazi fascist style as the totalitarians and they don't see the socialism and communism as the totalitarian, yep. uh, they also see the need for gun rights. You had major uh, militant minority groups you had the black panthers uh the new black panthers you had other groups like that there standing side by side with your redneck country boys defending gun rights because they all see that a totalitarian or an authoritarian government is not going to protect their individual rights they're going to defend their own power and the general welfare of the masses in what they decide or define that to be. So uh, it it was rather impressive from that perspective how many different people groups who largely disagree with each other stood hand-in-hand, side-by-side, defending their rights. And more importantly, uh, I wouldn't say more importantly, uh, just as important, everybody cleaned up after themselves. No, you yeah. have all these environmentalists, all these left-wing rights groups that get together and have these just absurd straw man arguments against 
their opponents in the right wing. And they just trash the place while they're supposed to be the ones who care about the environment. Man, there was tons of videos of people cleaning up after themselves after this rally last week. So that was yeah. also spoke volumes about the the true attitude uh, that has not been propagandized and manipulated and straw manned by the media and the the people in the general public on the left wing who hate the right wing because they're not the same as them. Yeah. So. Yeah, great, great application of the Second Amendment and the right to self-defense there. And talking about the application, let's dig down a little bit deeper and talk about the foundational aspects of it, right? One Absolutely. Of, one of the main reasons that it existed was to protect the citizenry from a tyrannical government. So yes. it, it makes perfect sense that you would see this application by so many different people. The founding fathers, uh, some were more pro-gun than others. And all of them were terrorists in the eyes of the British crown. Yep. Right? Every single one of them were oppositionists to the existing authority. So those in the right wing who complain about the Antifa types and left-wing revolutionary groups just because they exist are contradicting their own history, right? Absolutely. The, the founders, the people who fought for independence from the British Empire did the same thing. Their, their cultural and political ideology was very different from Antifa, which is where I understand at least where the right-wing opposition to the Antifa types is coming from, but they, they need to be careful to differentiate between opposition to their cultural goals, uh, the socialism, the communism, the uh, removal of right-wing authoritarian power, yeah. uh, and the violence against your average citizen who disagrees with you versus the general idea of revolutionary thought right they 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 are opposing their own history by generally opposing the revolutionary thought versus opposing the effects the symptoms of that thought among the right the left-wing extremists yeah and i think going along with that uh one of or actually two of the things that we see happening here in the more modern times uh, one being the continued polarization of right versus left. That it, there's a, 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 I mean, it's been going on for decades at this point, where it's less and less likely to see somebody identify with a middle view. I mean, often a moderate is really just less conservative than the Republicans or less liberal than most of the Democrats. There's still this wide chasm. Uh, relative to, to how it's been in years past. But also, and I think this is even more important, that uh, c there's a constitutional breakdown where yes. you have Congress whose function constitutionally is to make laws. Well, in efforts to get reelected, they want to do more virtue signaling to their constituents to say, well, we tried to do something, but it's those guys over there who wouldn't <laughs> let us make it happen. Elect me again, and we'll keep fighting for it, right? Yeah. Uh, 
then you have uh, that can getting kicked over to the Supreme Court, which is nine, at this point, nine unelected justices who are ultimately deciding what laws or what policies are constitutional. And also you have an executive branch that's widening in power with executive orders. I mean, Trump has done just as much as, as any other president. Obama was just as bad, if not worse. It, I mean, it's just a continued expansion and an overreach of what their authority is. And, and when you have that type of abdication of your responsibility, that that power isn't isn't going to leave a vacuum for long. It's going to be sucked up by something. Somebody's got to adjudicate this, right? Somebody's got to step up and make the decisions. And so the president's going to say, well, if Congress isn't going to get this done, executive order, boom, it's done. And then the Supreme Court comes in and either says it's constitutional or it's not, and we all have to live with it. Whereas if Congress would, con- would actually function as they ought, then that would lessen the importance of who's in the White House. That would lessen the importance of the judiciary, to not completely, but definitely to the extent that it's at now. And as we see this continued abdication of responsibility and, and uh, proceeding overreach, you have this tendency towards tyranny. Because when the... Yes. It, adding in this bipartisan, this, this uh, vitriolic nature that we have between the parties, when the other guy's in the White House and he's the one making the executive orders that you don't like, all of a sudden, well, now, yeah, we should be pro-Second Amendment because what if he gets so totalitarian that he comes to take my rights away? And it can be just as easily flipped. It doesn't matter which party's in power. Those who are opposed, typically, like you said, whether it's Antifa, whether it's you, you know, you're run-of-the-mill uh, Republicans, they're going to be able to stand together and say, regardless of who's up there, if this power is going to be abused, we need the ability to defend ourselves. And that goes right back to the principles of why the Second Amendment was put there to begin with. Absolutely. And, you know, we could get on a whole rabbit hole conversation about how our entire federal government has abdicated their authority for convenience sake. I think that's probably a conversation for another topic, another podcast, but I would like to just broach skim the surface on that as it ties into the second amendment. Okay. So the three branches were originally designed to be co-equal with checks and balances. Right. And, Within a decade of the Constitution being ratified, that had already been flipped on its head. Uh, the, co- the Congress tried to give the court authority over oh – gosh, I forget what the law was, what, the, what it was called or what it was about. But uh, Congress tried to write a law given the court's authority that the Supreme Court justice – and the justices on the court together ruled that they didn't have the authority over, right? They didn't have constitutional yeah. authority over it. And that established judicial review. Oh, you're right? talking about Marbury versus Madison. It had an unintentional Madison. consequence. They, they refused authority Congress was trying to give them that they believed they were not authorized under the Constitution. 
But in the process, they set up their own authority for judicial review of the other two branches, making them more than co-equal. Right. Uh, on top of that, as you mentioned, Congress abdicating their authority elsewhere, uh, executive privilege and executive authority over various executive branch departments. So Department of Defense, Department of State, IRS, everything that would be considered a education department or division of, yeah, right, uh, <laughs> of the executive branch. There's, I forget the exact number, but there's dozens of departments that their authorization, their funding, and their specific mission as the Constitution requires the Congress to manage have lapsed by decades. Mm -hmm. uh, during Bush's administration, administration, Bush Jr., there were several different departments, who, and there's a specific term for it. Um, it's, it it's, it's dead men walking, zombies, something along those lines. Uh, departments, ghost departments, uh, yeah. Not like black ops ghosts, but it, in as much as they exist in perpetuity without proper current authorization, funding, and mission statements written by Congress as they're supposed to, or mission statements written by the executive approved by conference or altered by Congress per their. So they had the power of the purse string, and they have abdicated yeah. a lot of that authority to the executive branch. So, for example, the funding for the wall that Trump recently reassigned <laughs> won a federal court case on. Say that again. He, he reassigned it. Yeah, he reassigned <laughs> funding from other DOD divisions, uh, funding that was discretionary funding. Right. So funding for construction projects and they decided they weren't necessary or weren't going to occur because this was more necessary to the defense of the nation. And because of existing law and because the Congress branch, the congressional branch of our government has abdicated so much of their authority, it was quote unquote perfectly legal within the existing system, according to the federal courts, for Trump to do this. Now, originally constitutionally, no, it would not be, but the Congress has given up so much of their power to the other branch that that has become the case. <laughs> so uh, we, we already see tyranny because of the laziness and the defense of one's power, right? That they're, as you said, they're, they're worried about their reelection, not doing government properly. Yeah, congression, uh, Congress and uh, congressmen and senators uh, strike me very much uh, in the same vein as the pharmaceutical companies. The uh, the money is in the treatment, not the cure. And so if they yes. actually pass laws to solve these issues, well, then their job is done. But if they can continue to campaign to keep this issue alive, which is how umpteen Republicans have, have continued to stump on pro-life causes, not to uh, completely take us back to last week, but they're continuing to stump on these pro-life causes without enacting any meaningful pro-life legislation. And Absolutely. it just seems like it's a continuing cycle of just trying to get power. And you couple that with a voter apathy. 
which has uh, allowed over time these necessary regulations and laws that should be decided at the state level now they're at the federal level because the voters can't be bothered to hold their state representatives accountable. Yes. Well, and the further you go from the local level, the less influence you have because mm-hmm. your senator, your state senator is over the entire state whereas your state representative is beholden to your district alone. I don't know if I'd agree with that on the state level because my local representative and my state senator I I mean I mean your your senator in Washington DC from your state. Uh, the okay the the Yeah, not the your state senator. Federal senator. Yeah, federal okay. federal senator from your yeah. state. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I would definitely agree there. I would say that my local representative and my state congress representative and my state senator are equally accessible and I don't know if I would want to say manipulable but equally open to strong wording of opposition to their positions. Yeah. But yeah, as you get into the federal government, they, you know, you have two people representing the whole state versus 12 or 15 uh, representing smaller portions of the state in the state Senate versus the U S Senate. Uh, there's more power involved. Uh, they, they have to, the, the federal senators and Congress members, have to vote sufficiently to keep their voting base happy, but yeah. also to keep their party happy. And that's one thing that's really a, a core component to the problems we see with people giving up rights, whether it's the right to life or the right to self-defense or any other right uh, to the state, is tribalism. Right. This us versus them mentality and the uh, I think it was George Washington in his uh, farewell address at the end of his second term who warned against a future of based around political parties and specifically two oppositional political parties. Yeah, the two parties. And at least since World War II, if not since the Civil War. We've seen that in our society. It has caused a rift that has just gotten worse, caused separation and divide that just is not necessary, right? Things that are made primary focus in life because they're politically expedient and they're part of the groupthink of a right versus left mentality just don't matter in the big scheme as much as they're made to be. Yeah, I, one thing I want to say on that, but before I, I wanted to go back to the whole uh, senator uh, thing, our federal senators are now elected by the population of the state. Uh, I, I would argue that it's uh, an undermining of state authority and state power to have that happen when the Constitution states that it's actually the state's uh, government who should be appointing the senators. That's how it was originally in the Constitution is that you had the House of Representatives that were directly voted on by the people, representing the people's interest, and then you had the senators basically representing the state's interest. Yeah, appointed by the state government, however the state government chose to do it. That was updated uh, in one of the later amendments, and I'm going blank at the moment uh, on which one it was. Uh, 
while you're looking that up, that just seems to be a continued example of how state authority has been advocated to the federal level. 22nd Amendment. Yeah, so uh, in the 22nd Amendment, that was altered so that instead of states appointing senators, it was by popular vote. And I agree, it watered down the process to the point where uh, our state representatives do not have as much authority over the state and they are not held as accountable in the process by the average citizen because if they vote for someone to be a senator that the people don't want, they can be voted out, right? Yep. So there, there's more engagement in the entire process the way it was previously. Um, I understand the democratic process and how people prefer to have direct control over it. But our founding fathers did not, by mistake, create a republic, right? They did so intentionally because democracy had failed so thoroughly throughout history. So, yeah, that that is a valid point, but that is constitutionally no longer the case because that 22nd Amendment was ratified by the people. All right, so so getting back to this this idea of the the separation between the groups, this uh, increasingly two-party system that we have and and how uh, divisive it's become and how detrimental it's become to civil discourse and really just the operation of government, um, it seems that within each of these extremes, whether it's Republican or Democrat, that there's still a spectrum in there on certain issues, right? There's in the Democrats we're seeing right now in the primaries, they're your more centrist, moderate Democrats like a Biden, uh, as opposed to your more far left loonies like Bernie Sanders. And so you've got the party kind of stretching itself. Is it going to continue to go left or is it going to start dropping people off? Similarly, in the Republican side, I, I think there's a, a strong libertarian movement that's building uh, within the Republican Party that's kind of butting up against the establishment. We saw it a decade or so ago with the Tea Party, and we're seeing it now more with um, people who would readily identify as libertarians, where you didn't see that as much before. Um, the question that arises is, as this um, separation widens, as this chasm between these two main parties widen. Do you think that they will continue to stay cohesive and continue uh, in their trajectories? Or do you think that they drop off people who are more moderate, that aren't as right-wing or aren't as left-wing, and that those people uh, can find enough common ground to maybe bring a third party or perhaps two separate parties, one that's kind of centrist left, one that's kind of centrist right, to provide a legitimate challenge? So there's there's several key points there to be made, and there's several perspectives from which to look at that. Uh, You already see the effects in the left. uh, Intersectionality uh, uh, is causing the left to cannibalize itself. They, They can't come to an agreement on anything because if you're not an extremist on every subject, then you're wrong. But the problem is the various subjects that you have to be an extremist on 
are so contradictory to each other sometimes that there's there's no possibility for consistency. Mm. Right. And the left wing leaning people who would identify more as centrists. Uh, oh, gosh, there was a gentleman who was a military guy who ran for president in 2016. Um, let me see if I can look him up right quick. Uh, I think I know who you're talking about, but I Jim Webb. Yeah, uh, he he was a former colonel, I think, in the military. And the man was very much a social liberal, and he was generally a political liberal, historically speaking. He he was a liberal in the fold of a John F. Kennedy, right? Not yeah. in the fold of a Barack Obama or a Bernie Sanders. And he was he was defensive of the Second Amendment. He was defensive of the military, but acknowledged that we had an absurd tendency towards uh, aggressive, proactive assaults on the world and yeah. to uh, blown budgets. Uh, but still, in as much as a military man would ever be defensive of the military and our purpose in the world, uh, man, I, if he had stayed in the race, if he had not been shafted by the whole Hillary Clinton machine, I'd have voted for him in a heartbeat, right? Yeah. And there were a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who liked him. Uh, kind of like this cycle with, gosh, I'm, I'm going blank on her name like I did on the Benjamin Franklin quote last week. Uh, <laughs> oh, what's the chick's name from Hawaii? Uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Yes. Gabbard. Uh, kind of like she is, right? She yeah. she is very pro-military. She's generally moderate, but if you really dig down into her political ideology, she's a Bernie Sanders light. Jim Webb was not. Uh, but but she stands out from the crowd like he did, right? And in your moderates and even libertarians would vote for someone like that because they're not the the extremist ideologue. So. Do I see cohesiveness surviving? Absolutely not, because it's already destroying the left. It's happening in the right as well, but as you mentioned, people self-identifying as libertarians, people separating themselves from the two-party system, it's not as much as is occurring in the left wing where people still identify as leftists or progressives, but right. try to distance themselves from the political moderate, uh, but still try to hold unity together, mm -hmm. even though they eat, they cannibalize themselves more so than the right does in the right. It is, I mean, you, you have by default a more individual minded political and social ideology on the right. So right. they're more likely to be willing to separate from the Republicans from to the libertarians, to the constitutionalists, they are already more divided, which is why you see more political power on the left, because they are willing to at least pay lip service to unification for a goal. Yeah, and, and that's that's the other thing that came to mind as you were talking about the radicalization of the left. You have a lot of ideologues that, that are definitely tearing up the Democrat Party as we speak. 
And it seems that even the constitutionalists, the libertarians, these fringe conservative uh, parties right now, uh, they're still pragmatic enough that uh, many of them consider most elections, if not all, to be primarily two-party races, especially at the federal level. So you see libertarians and constitutionalists, etc., continuing to vote more Republicans specifically as a vote against the Democrats. But as you get lower and lower at the state and local levels, I think that's where you're going to start to see a groundswell, uh, similar to how Bernie Sanders actually made it uh, to the Senate as an independent, right? He had some name recognition, he had some popularity already, and he was able to come in without party affiliation or without traditional party affiliation. I think similarly, we can expect to see in primarily red states, libertarians elected to state office, right? Yeah. So uh, in the in the case of Bernie Sanders, I think that's the best case that can be had on the left wing side of the political spectrum for a non-mainstream political affiliation yeah. being independently popular for his personality, for his rhetoric, for his excuse me, activity inside of government. Uh, we we vacationed in Stowe, Vermont over the Christmas holiday, and everywhere we went, people, even people who couldn't stand him politically, loved, and you'd be surprised how many conservatives there are in Vermont. I was shocked by that. Uh, but as the mayor of Burlington, he was loved and adored by the people. Yeah. So his political extremism from a Democrat and Republican perspective being a self-proclaimed social, uh, not socialist, um, social Democrat or uh, democratic, democratic socialist, socialist however yeah. you want to differentiate those three with <laughs> meaningless semantic differences. Uh, they just call him good old Uncle Bernie. Yeah, Uncle Bernie, exactly. <laughs> That's the attitude. Uh, you know, he, He's not the creepy Uncle Joe, but he is creepy uncle bernie in a different meaning uh the the creepy socialist versus the uh creepy pedophile that uh uncle yeah. joe is i digress um but yeah so similarly you've got gary johnson who ran as the libertarian party candidate uh for president in 2016 and then he got elected uh, new mexico wherever he is uh in the next election cycle to the state government. I mean, sweeping. New Mexico, not Mexico, right? What? I thought I heard you say he got elected in Mexico. You no, mean New, New Mexico. Mexico. Okay, yeah. just yeah. just to clarify, he's yeah. a, he had to leave the country yeah. to get elected. No, he didn't leave the country. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that, that part of Mexico, the New Mexico, oh gosh, what was the map that came out? Uh, everybody was mocking Trump for that had Mexico outside the uh wall it was it's kind of funny oh, yeah. it looks like a trolling post anyway so yeah uh the, you know uh i've had people who cannot stand my own political positions online acknowledge that someone like me would be great for state or local government because it would limit the intrusion on a person's life right, right. so uh for example, since my transition from hardcore right-wing 
republicanism to libertarianism, I have accepted that even though from a moral perspective, I vehemently disagree with uh, the whole LGBT crowd, right? They have constitutional right to equal treatment under the law like anyone else does. Um, I don't think marriage should be managed by the federal government. Oh, so okay. Marriage, I view as a solely religious act, not something that is licensed by the government. So my position on that is the government shouldn't be managing it at all. So they shouldn't be telling lesbians or homosexuals that they can't quote unquote marry. It's a civil union. It's not marriage in the eyes of God, but you know, uh, we're just going to tag this for a future episode because I, I think we disagree there. Okay. <laughs> Go. Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're coming up on the end of this episode. We're not going down that rabbit hole now. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, there, there, are, there are people across the political spectrum who see the absurdity of the false dichotomy between the right, the American right versus left. Uh, I have a friend in my industry, uh, known him for 10 years. He's originally from Brazil, came to the U S in his teens. I think he was 13, 14 when he came to the United States. Uh, currently a U.S. citizen has been for 15, 20 years. Uh, he and several people who are a foreign born left-wing cultures state rather accurately that the left versus right dichotomy in the U.S. is not differentiated by much at all. There, there is not a left wing and a right wing in our government. It's the same group. You know, they have very minor differences uh, in the big scheme of thing. They agree. They agree far more than a true left wing and a true right wing would yeah. somewhere like the U.K. or France uh, or even. Uh, the left wing in Brazil, this this friend pointed out. If we get out of the tribalism, we'll see that it, it's it's a game of us versus them, and the us is we the people, and them is the government and their self uh, defense of their power. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the things that can be helpful uh, from a, a practical standpoint is using this tribalism this uh, mutual distrust of federal government to support our own defense against what we perceive as tyranny. So similarly, our left-wing friends who abhor Trump, we want to support their right to bear arms in case Trump does actually go full Hitler, right? Not, not that anybody thinks he will outside of them, but just in case, they should be able to defend themselves just as we should. Because if Trump goes full Hitler, there's going to be a lot of people who turn on him, right? That don't like him any more than some of us did in 2016, myself included. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I've softened to him because of the absurd uh, focused objection to him in the political realm and in the media realm, but I still yeah. don't plan on voting for him as of this point uh, in November. Uh, but yeah, the defense of a person's right to freedom of speech, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, self-defense. Uh, if Trump ever did 
turn on the people the way the extremists think he is as the next Hitler, I will be the first one to take off arms next to them against him. I will not put up with that crap, no matter how much I agree with some things they say. So, yeah, wrapping up our first uh, two-part series, which was was a lot of fun, Uh, Life, Liberty, and Protection, I think we can see. uh, I think we've made a good case in both of these episodes how, um, especially here, the um, Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, recognizes our responsibility and our right to defend ourselves, to defend our lives, to defend our liberty, to protect life, to protect liberty. And all of that for us uh, primarily is rooted in the fact that humans are made in the image of God. So when we protect our wives, when we protect, when I protect my daughter, when you protect your kids, we're protecting image bearers of God. That is no different than when we advocate for pro-life causes because those unborn babies are no less made in the image of God. And Absolutely. That's how this all ties in. And I'd like to I'd like to add one closing statement to that. Yeah, come on. The the one factor that I use to disprove arguments about legal ownership of guns is CCW concealed carries weapons licensing persons in the United States that demographic people who are licensed and trained to their state's standards to own and carry personal concealed personal weapons are the most law-abiding demographic in the country, yep. more so than law enforcement officers, <laughs> right? Not even law enforcement is as law-abiding as the CCW license-owning crowd. So whatever Perfect. argument you have against gun ownership, you're arguing the wrong thing if you're arguing against people who follow the laws regarding guns, owning those guns. Yep. Well said. And since we spent some time talking uh, specifically about those in in authority over us, our federal and state uh, government, uh, I'd like to close out with uh, a few verses from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Exhortation to all of us. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.